Welcome to My One Question Is. This is a monthly podcast at the intersection of art, race, story, and hope. We're calling it an adventure in listening. We're asking questions. We're amplifying voices in the Akron art community. We want to break down cultural barriers through art and conversation. I'm Laura, and they're Jesse. Let's get started. Please introduce yourself. And what I said there was a pretty standard Ojibwe protocol greeting. I said, hi, relatives. My name is Nibu Wakamikwe, uh, which best translates in English to watery ground or wet earth woman or femme person. I'm Martin Clan, a descendant of the Leech Lake Band of Minnesota Ojibwe. I sit in the Bear Clan of the United Indian Nation in New York, and I am a registered descendant with the um, Red River Settlement in what is now Manitoba, Canada, uh, the Red River Métis Settlement. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about care and compassion. Can you define what care and compassion means to you in your tradition? And so I think that's, you know, that's a really core tenant of, of how we move through you know, and that's a question that you're always asking yourself is, and I'm, as, is am I living a good life? Um, in Haudenosaunee teachings, um, Haudenosaunee, the Oneida, or the Onyataga are, are part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Sometimes we're called the Iroquois. Don't call us that. Um, <laughs> but we, um, we have the seven generations teachings, meaning that every time you make a decision, you are looking seven generations back to what those who did, you know, you know, the, you're looking to those before you, what they did and how they process. And then you look to the seven generations after you and what they have done. And so really kind of moving through the world in this um, constant state of, of care and consideration for others, um, because that's what's going to keep us all together and here and well. Can you please give us an example of how care and compassion is part of your work? Yeah, so I, um, and I, I'm on a little bit of a um, powwow kick right now because it's summer, it's powwow season. I, I don't do the full trail like a lot of people do. Um, I, I don't have the energy or <laughs> the stamina for that. Um, and I have my art practice here, here in Dejo. But um, something that I've thought a lot about, I'm a Jingobus dancer, Sasekwe, um, and it's really important for us to really take care of each other. It's a medicine dance, you know, it's, it's meant to um, take care of the community, care for your community. And with COVID, um, it was this really special and important time for jingle dress dancers because this is really what this dress was created for. Um, the dress was created around 100 years ago during the Spanish influenza epidemic in Mille Lacs. Um, some people will move around a little bit, but Mille Lacs really has a solid history and um, strong understanding of the jingle dress and they really value it. And so when we look at our traditions and how we dance and why we dance, um, it really is for the community. And so for me lately, I've been trying to make as many dresses as I can to give away. Um, for a lot of people, there's a really high cost of entry to, to dance. Um, you either have to know someone who knows how to make things and has all of the time, money, energy, skills, equipment to, to make regalia. And so 
I've been making jingle dresses as I can. I was really lucky to receive a grant from the Orchard Center for the Arts in Madison that was a community going of a jingle dress. And oftentimes when you go to a powwow, you'll see people sometimes talking to jingle dress dancers before they go and dance. And that's because they're talking to that person asking um, for that dancer to pray for a relative or someone. And because we didn't have powwows for several years, because jingle dress dancers weren't dancing in a way where people could come and bring their prayers, um, part of the project that I had was people would write their prayers and intentions on these, uh, the flats. So uh, jingle cones, sometimes you can buy in pre-roll, but a lot of times, um, and traditionally, they've always been flats, like snuff can lids, baking soda can lids, um, all these different materials, and then you roll them with a hand tool. And so before we rolled them, people would write their intentions on them because they're not able to say them, you know, to a dancer. And then we would roll them and we'd attach them to the dresses, this really amazing community undertaking. And um, it was really beautiful because there were some uh, Ho-Chunk women and I'm, I'm not Ho-Chunk, I live on Ho-Chunk land, really appreciative as a guest here. Um, and there were some, some lovely Ho-Chunk aunties who um, were really intentional. They even wanted on the left sleeve closest to your heart. Um, they really were careful and thoughtful with their intentions and prayers that they wrote down. And it was, I want to see more more of our children involved in the culture. I want to see more of them dancing again. I want us to be able to come together and dance again. So that dress that was made for Overture, I made it in my size because I just didn't, you know, I'm a pretty like average size person. And I figure, okay, well, you know, when this dress finds a home, it'll, it'll find a home. And I only wore it once. And then it found a home from a, um, with a Ho-Chunk woman who's lived in Madison most of her life, but is traveling a lot more as part of her work and her education. Um, and has come into jingle dress dancing as something that's really important to her. And she hadn't had a, a dress like that yet. And how beautiful that it has all of these prayers and intentions of her community, you know, both her, her tribal community and the community that she was raised in on that dress. And it's so awesome to see her dance in it. And it, it's been beautiful. I receive dresses as gifts. Um, it's something where I always feel a little bit uncomfortable selling them because I have no idea how to price it. But I've been really lucky in that I've been gifted dresses before and I'm finally at a point. And I think that's kind of always the goal is that we get to that point where we're able to continue to gift ourselves. And so it's been really cool to kind of see that shift in dynamic. It feels like kind of coming fully into adulthood in a lot of ways where it's like, oh, you know, here we are um, in that stage of life. So that feels really special and just how it has this really, really deep community base. And, and how we see ourselves and how we interact with each other. That's a great example. I appreciate that. And you know what? I had no idea um, that that was that there was a prayer that went with each of the what do they call them cones? You said so. Sometimes, yeah, people call them cones or flat or jingles. Um, I had no idea that you would make them out of can lids or put prayers on them. I had no idea that that was part of that whole thing. So thanks for explaining that to us. Yeah. I mean, the writing is, is new. That was something where I talked to some of my elders and I'm saying, Hey, I really feel like this is important and could be good with COVID. Um, and all the writing is turned to the inside. So you can't see it. I don't know if other jingle dress dancers do that. I, um, I might be the only person doing that right now, but definitely not only for long. I think that's going to, to grow a bit as, as people see, you know, see it apply to them but um 
when we're making jingle dresses, really any regalia, you're supposed to have really good thoughts and intentions because, you know, if you're going in there and you're, you know, cussing out yourself, you just poked yourself with a pin or something, um, you know, that's not putting really good um, energy and thoughts into that regalia. And you don't want the dancer then to have to carry that because that's so much extra weight. <laughs> and so um, I just thought it was something that was really cool because then we could actually talk about when we were rolling the cones, of, you know, telling people, especially, you know, little kids, you know, saying, okay, you know, you really think good thoughts when you do this, you know, and the cone's going to come out a lot better when you, when you think good thoughts and when you're happy. Um, and it's this really good way of kind of putting everything into perspective. And I think a lot of times, especially with the pandemic, people felt a lot of hopelessness and a lot of just unmooring. Um, this is a really good way of kind of focusing yourself in um, and taking that time to you know, put yourself in a positive way and then do this good thing. That's awesome. That reminds me of like the process of making prayer ties before you go into lodge. Yeah, exactly. Just having that really good, good thought intent. Um, and people often will, will gift the SEMA or ceremonial tobacco to, um, to dance before they go out and dance as, you know, asking them to pray and to, to think about them. Cool. Thanks. So um, can we just explain how powwows work? As someone who doesn't know, I know you referred to powwows um, trail. Can, can you give me like the, like, what's, what's it, the 101 class on it? Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> uh, so powwow trail basically refers to going from powwow to powwow, sometimes nonstop, because there are weekday powwows, there are weekend powwows. And so people will go, there's good food. Um, in a lot of ways, it can be helpful to, to dancers who are you know, really good and they're looking to earn some money. Um, you know, there's traditional powwows where they'll sometimes have, um, you know, there won't be these big prizes, but it's just good to come together. A lot of times they're based um, in specific communities. Um, so, you know, a specific reserve in Canada or Reservation US will have, you know, a couple powwows a year. Some just have one, some will have, you know, every other weekend. <laughs> um, it really depends on, on that community and what they, they look for. But powwows are, um, they're, they're social events. They're open to anyone. Uh, they really came in a lot of ways from like the Buffalo Bill Cody Wild West shows. Um, and I think being in Canada, you know, Indian Act um, and also in the United States as well, our ceremonies and a lot of our social gatherings, our traditional practices were banned. And when you look at the history of residential and boarding schools, oftentimes the only time that we were allowed to be native was in this sort of performative way. Um, and so powwows can sometimes hold a similar weight to like fry bread. It's delicious, it's wonderful, but we know that it came from a lot of hardship. And so powwows can be this really wonderful way. They're intertribal, meaning that people from all nations can, can come to them and dance. So I, I mean, the next one coming up for me is Menominee powwow, first weekend of August. I, I have to take a little bit of time in between them for, for my work and, and different events, but Menominee powwow is coming up. I'm not Menominee, but I am absolutely welcome to dance there and I will have a really good time and I'll get to see my Menominee friends and stay with them and, uh, my Menominee family members. It's really beautiful. Um, you know, so it's really, it's not ceremony like capital C in a lot of ways, but it is gathering together, being amongst each you know, there will be vendors there, food vendors, craft, art. It's really cool. Everyone, you know, puts a lot of work into their regalia and it says so much about that person. And it's beautiful just to see, you know, your friends dance and be able to hang out. 
I view it a lot as like like native homecoming dances in a lot of ways. And oftentimes powwows are called homecoming powwows because the hope is that community members who are dispersed, um, you know, whether they're living in cities or, you know, they move to a different reserve, they, you know, they're, they're living with people there. It gives them a chance to kind of come back and, and be around their community. And then it also gives us a chance, you know, who might not be from that community to, to be there and, to just enjoy each other's company. Um, I really enjoy doing it. I dance old style jingle, um, which uh, was jingle that was really uh, more common from uh, the early 1920s when the jingle dress was created into the, the 50s and 60s. When you see um, powwows kind of open up more, when you see the removal of um, certain bands uh, on religion and ceremonial practices and this kind of phasing out of um, residential and boarding schools, that's when you see like contemporary jingle and these really, um, these kind of bigger dances because people were actually able to, to take that time and to grow, um, you know, when you're really contained, it can be difficult to innovate and to, to expand. And so when a lot of these laws were lifted um, or when acts were put in place to protect our religious freedoms um, and to protect our children, then more people were involved. And so Powell changed. Um, I like dance old style because I'm Minnesota Ojibwe. It's where the jingle dress court, you know, originated. So I like dancing it that way. Um, but I used to dance contemporary when I was little. And there's um, a few different categories. I'm sorry, I realized like there's no Powell 101. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so bad at this. Um, but there's, this, it's usually divided. Sometimes it can be very binary, like men's and women's or, or men's and ladies. I usually like to say apron dances and dress dances. Um, so aprons are traditionally men's dances, um, is men's traditional, which is like anything, um, grass dance and men's fancy, which you often see with the really big bustles. Um, and then in the dress or women's dances, you have, um, traditional, which again can be just about anything. Um, like my friend who's you pick when she comes to a powwow, because she sometimes wants to come with us, she'll bring her dance plans and her kus book and she'll just stand in place and do her best to dance along. And that's still traditional dancing. That's her tradition. Um, but obviously that looks so different from a buckskin dancer or an applique dancer, you know, woodland scrub dancer. So that, you know, it's a really big, and then there's jingle and then fancy show. Oh no, I think we lost them again. Oh no. <clears throat> It's like uh, the Grateful Dead, but of powwows. <laughs> what I was thinking, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> it sounds in a way almost like a drag or something too. And it was restricted before. And now when when you got Drag Race and RuPaul and stuff, it's like, let's innovate too and see what you can do in that space. Ooh, let's ask them to speak to that. All right. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I'm so sorry. I have no idea how much that cut off. No um, you were just sort of talking about like different traditions and long and short. I think you were getting to the end of what you were talking about. Anyway. I'm so glad. Hopefully <laughs> we'll just call it even. There's a lot of different styles. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. As someone who doesn't know too much that knowing that there's a lot of different styles, anyone's invited, anyone's welcome. And that if I didn't know anything, I could still go. That's yeah. And I think for any of these spaces, the idea is to like go and, and be respectful and be observant. You know, if you're, if everybody's standing and you're sitting, you know, stand if you're able. Um, and you know, if being quiet, be quiet if you're able, <laughs> those types of things. So it's really, um, it's really open and welcoming. 
and you know, this isn't really a replacement for our traditional ceremonies and doings. Powwow is not, it's not a replacement for, for going to lodge and for that kind of spirituality, but it is a place to gather and to be around your friends and to see people and, and, to, da- and to dance really hard. I, I love being able to go out and get really sticky <laughs> and dance hard and knowing that, you know, you, you feel really good. So when you were talking about innovation and it and how it's changed over the years from contemporary or from traditional to contemporary, I started thinking about drag and how drag coming from dance halls in New York and that community has changed so much into, say, RuPaul today. I know your eyes are lighting up a little bit. <laughs> Ugh, I have feelings. <laughs> okay. Um, at times about contemporary drag, because I mean, drag balls are rooted in like black, Latina, Asian, uh, urban culture. And, but now when you ask people, oh, name five drag queens, they're probably naming five white drag queens. I can appreciate, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race being mainstream and, and all that good stuff. I would hope that there would be kind of this, you know, and this is the difference of like old style sometimes. It's like, oh, you really want to make sure for all the ways that this art form can change and grow and and look different, you don't want anyone to forget the original way that it was done because there is so much power and beauty in that. And that's partially also why I dance old style is. I mean, luckily it is a really popular form when you look out, I mean, especially here in the, around Minnesota, Wisconsin, where the jingle dress originated, you see a lot of old style dancers because they're really proud of that. They want to keep that, that tradition strong. But you know, if I go a bit further West, you don't see as many old style dancers. And some people wonder, oh, why, why don't they have the really big feathers? Why aren't they carrying a big fan? Why aren't they doing all of these, you know, twirls and grapevining and, and really, you know, really busting a move out there. And that's because we're taught that, you know, old style is you keep your feet close to the ground, you know, you pray, you make these serpentining patterns and, um, and you wear simpler regalia because, you know, you want to focus on praying. Contemporary dancing is still prayer. You know, there's still power and beauty. It's still a healing dance. I think just the way that we approach it is different. And so those two can absolutely coexist. And I love to see both. I love watching both styles of, of jingle dress dancing. All right. What is the most important thing that people need to know about working cross-culturally, either with the Indigenous community or when working with non-Indigenous colleagues? Something that, um, actually I was saying that this is really pertinent because at the conference I'm speaking at this coming week that I leave for tonight, <laughs> um, which I really appreciate you being flexible with me today. Um, I leave for this conference tonight and it's for, um, it's a museum conference and we're actually talking about cultural appropriation. What I think a lot of people, they sometimes hear things like cultural appropriation or cultural competency, but something that we talk about with cultural appropriation is, you know, when you, when you're looking at something and using it in a good way, you know, what is the source? What's the significance? What are the similarities? And I think applying that in our relationships can be really important too. Say this is a non-native organization working with a native person. The native person, as the source, you know, as someone who's been in that culture, been raised in that culture, it's so important to value them as an expert in their own right. I think oftentimes 
people come in, they say, oh, well, I have a degree in American Indian studies. And that's what we still call those here in the States oftentimes. Or, oh, I've been working with tribes, you know, um, for a long, long time. But having not been in those communities, not being a member of that community, being in proximity, this is different. A lot of times people don't always understand why we don't sh openly share every single part of our culture. And I mean, it was illegal up until the 1970s in the U.S. And it's still in a lot of ways it's persecuted. And people want to make sure, our, our elders, community members, they want to make sure that those are safe. The significance of the situation really kind of dictates your actions. And so, you know, there are some objects that are not meant to be touched by people who are not using them. And, you know, then you look at similarities. I think it's really valuable to, you know, consider common grounds, really being around like active community members, not just having a book, which is a beautifully written book, but very passive. You're not actually talking to a native person. You're just reading someone's thoughts and feelings. You know, this isn't a, a dialogue that's going back and forth. There aren't ways that we can relate, you know? And I think sometimes people, they really want to. Um, they really want to be careful not to do anything wrong, and sometimes that effort to not do anything wrong can be really awkward and uncomfortable. And I think when people just come in and are really good listeners, that's probably the best thing ever. We'll take this time to to talk with you. I think a lot of times our you know our our voices were because we're so commonly seen in a historical context people sort of view us a little bit like walking libraries and history books and museum exhibits and that can be really uncomfortable um and so making sure that you know <laughs> geez we're just treated as people um and in my experience working with non-native organizations um and this is usually in the context of uh pwis or predominantly white institutions um and that can be anything from the university of wisconsin where i have a fellowship or um, the Wisconsin Historical Society, which we're working on. They're working on building a new history center um, and they're working a lot with Native Nations in Wisconsin to build a history center, not a museum, a history center <laughs> that accurately reflects um, tribal history and our, um, our current lives. But there's always that power dynamic that can be really difficult uh, to work with and so you know, I think a lot of times when Native people are in those situations, we have to be really careful with ourselves and, and really careful and protective of our time, our resources, our communities, our elders. But once we're able to see that that's being respected in a really good way, then you're going to see a lot more of an equitable uh, exchange. That's really cool. Um, I really liked that you mentioned like really the simple things like listening and finding common ground. Like that makes a lot of sense to me. There's actually a really amazing book by Amy Lone Tree called Decolonizing Museums. And it's part memoir, part, um, part research <laughs> paper in a lot of ways. She's really, really um, does such a beautiful job with this book and she's Ho-Chunk too. So I'm like putting in a, um, uh, I'm putting in a plug for the home team, um, <laughs> but she, um, it's a really beautiful book talking about the Mille Lacs Museum, which was done uh, in partnership with the Minnesota Historical Society, uh, the National Museum of the American Indian, uh, you know, the Smithsonian Museum, 
in Washington, D.C., and then a uh, tribal museum community center in in Michigan that is all just done really, um, really beautifully. And just talking through the different approaches to each of these when it's, you know, this national level on this like state reservation partnership. For me, I'm working in the Center for Design and Materials Culture. So looking at a lot of really, really cool, really old objects that some of them my ancestors made. And we talk a lot about repatriation and rematriation for people who are holding native bodies. Let's work on getting those back where they belong. You shouldn't have taken that. <laughs> um, and we also use the term rematriation with seeds, like uh, archival seeds that have been kept and getting them back in the ground. Rematriation is using those items or having those items, objects, people at times, beings, return to the original intention. You know, it's going, it's going to return to their history center. And so it's not being returned to its original use. In a lot of ways, that's repatriation. You know, it's going from one museum to another in a lot of ways, but because it's being stewarded by the people who created it, there's going to be a lot more respect and also just having access. I've never been to the um, National Museum of the American Indian. A lot of times these, these big fancy museums, they're not accessible to us. And so it can be really hard to see these beautiful patterns and designs. And my great grandma, she made whimsies. They were often sold to tourists. They were these little beautiful uh, beaded trinket with these really beautiful raised beadwork designs. It would be in shapes of hearts. They'd have birds. Boots were really popular. Haudenosaunee women would make these and sell them at tourist sites like Niagara Falls. And my great grandma was one of those women. And she also made lace because that's how she was taught. And I only have one piece of her original lace, you know, because the whole point was that she had to sell it to survive. But being able to see an extant garment is so important, especially when we look at things that we're still using. Being able to see old jingle dresses is really beautiful. And it's really hard when you have to travel how many hundred miles to see them or you have to pay, you know, I mean, what our museum's going for, like sometimes 40 to $60 a day to go see them. You know, I think a lot of times you see museums stay when they're buying from native artists, when they're doing it respectfully, that native artist is being paid really, really well. You know, when that maker passes on in a lot of ways, that object, that design, you need to ask that maker's descendants in whatever form they may take, you know, well, what do you want with this now? You know, is this something that needs to be returned? Is this something that, you know, needs to be buried with the maker? You know, it's hard because I don't know all of my great grandma's designs. I would have loved to see her beadwork patterns and I don't have them. And I have no way of really knowing where they went. Um, I just know that they were sold for not a lot at Niagara Falls and Oneida Lake. And, you know, that it's a lot of sadness there. And, so you hope that, you know, as museums, history centers, cultural spaces, you know, are working together more and actually listening to Native voices, that we can see improved provenance. And so really looking at improving and adding personhood to the makers of these items. I just Googled um, Haudenosaunee Whimsy because I wanted to know what it was. What popped up was a bunch of um, stores on Etsy selling these things. And there's so many of them. And yeah, a lot of, and eBay, it's all over eBay and Etsy. And these are old whimsies. Um, 
and they didn't make them and they're selling them oftentimes for a lot more money than contemporary whimsy makers are, are selling them for. I think ledger art is a good example. Ledger art oftentimes being watercolors or colored pencil drawings um, by Northern Plains native people on ledgers and ledger could be on um, Indian agent census records. Um, it could be on sheet music, any piece of paper that they could get their hands on. This old ledger art is selling for at times thousands of dollars where contemporary ledger art, you know, and they're even able to make prints of it and also sell originals. It does not sell for nearly that amount, even though this work is beautiful and stunning and just as valuable. My coworker, Nipponette, who's the, um, the inaugural Madison <laughs> Metro Sewerage District artists in residence, they did this beautiful ledger art um, of three native uh, water carriers over a uh, toxicity report of the different wells in Madison with a photo overlaid of the Yahar River, which the Yahar River runs through Madison. I will have to send you a link because, oh my goodness, it's beautiful. Um, it's a stunning piece of ledger art. Like it's absolutely beautiful. Like I want to see this in, in art museums and galleries. It's stunning. But I think of how, you know, a collector, like a non-native collector will view this item as not having value potentially until, you know, 80, 200 years later, people really like this idea of, natives as being these remnants of the past and not being affected by contemporary issues. We see that with Standing Rock. We saw that with Oka. We saw that. We see that with uh, Line 3 and Line 5. You know, they don't like it when we're actually talking about contemporary issues. And, and I just think about how, how our existence in a contemporary sense is oftentimes devalued and, and scorned because it doesn't fit with this Western movie ideology. And we're people and we also do cool stuff. That's really interesting. I really like when you were talking about like what happens when the creator of it, like of the artwork um, passes and stuff. But I was thinking like, that's usually the way it is for a lot of other artists, right? They don't get famous until they die or their art isn't worth anything until they pass away. Right. Yeah. And I think it's this, um, that all kind of comes into this concept of scarcity, which is such a colonial mindset because, you know, like when art, increases in value after an artist walks on, it's because they're not able to make any more artwork, you know? And that's kind of the value of it. Oh, you're not gonna be able to get this piece again because they're never going to be able to paint it again in this world. It just doesn't feel like a really good way of moving through the world. I don't, um, <laughs> I get really frustrated. And for me, I, I sometimes have to live in this at times difficult scarcity mindset that I'm slowly trying to move out of living in Dejo, I'm outside my traditional homelands. And so it's a lot harder for me to harvest birch bark, to harvest porcupine quills, to scrape hides and smoke them and brain tan them traditionally. But I have to be careful when I make art at times because I don't want to, I don't want to hold back on these really beautiful materials, you know, in some ways limit my expression and this art form that I learned from my grandma, that I learned from aunties and, and friends. I don't want to hold back in that regard because I'm worried, oh, when's the next time I'm going to be able to get this many porcupine quills again that are all beautiful and long and straight and, you know, really, really bright white. Um, I'm really careful to just say, no, like I have them now. And so I will make things with them now 
And if I'm not going to use them, then I can pass them on to someone who will use them. And it's really important to see that because that's how, that's how we create and that's how we move past this really damaging mindset of thinking that there isn't enough and thinking that we need to hoard and, and collect and contain um, in order for something to have value or to wait for it to have value. Awesome. My one question is, is funded by a technology grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation's 2021 Knight's Art Challenge. All funding for the project is being handled by the Kent State University Foundation. We are grateful for their partnership and generosity. What's an easy way to apply care and compassion to one's own life? Um, I think kind of going back to what I said before, and I, I understand that when I talk about Haudenosaunee teachings or Anishinaabe teachings, sometimes people are like, oh, can I apply those myself? People sometimes wonder, oh, can I, can I take these approaches, can I take these teachings and apply them to my personal life? And it's absolutely, you're not taking anything by holding on to a mindset. There's also... Uh, as we have always done, and I forget the name of the author, she's, the title of it just completely explains that feeling, you know, this is how we have done things. And when you look towards our traditional teachings, when you look towards how, how we take care of, you know, the place around us, you know, because the goal here, one of my favorite expressions, and I forget who, who spoke it, um, we, we all know that we love the earth, you know, but we have to ask this question of, does the earth love us back? And I think oftentimes in native communities, we can say wholeheartedly, yes, absolutely, of course. And so it's something that I, I think about a lot and just how we, can, how we can use our traditional teachings. And when we're able to share those, when you're kind of aware of this this life ways because it's not always just oh have you written something down libraries are wonderful things and uh online pdfs are wonderful things and buying books to support amazing indigenous authors is also wonderful things <laughs> but when you're when you're a community that way when you're around these traditional life ways it kind of just it really flows naturally and so i always look towards you know we talk about like listening to indigenous people and we talk about land acknowledgments and how often that needs to be a land, a water, and a people acknowledgement. Because my way of moving through the world has changed living on Ho-Chunk land for this time. Like I've, you know, Ho-Chunk have certain teachings and certain practices and, and ways of going about that are different than what I was taught. But as a guest here, it's really important for me to follow that way because it is just as good and just as valid. And it's it's respectful on my end. And when I'm on Anishinaabe Waki, when I'm on Anishinaabe land, I kind of expect people to sort of follow, you know, Anishinaabe teachings and protocol. And that's something that's really, really special because when you look at communities who have been living with this land, our languages are shaped by it. Our, our ceremonies are shaped by it. Our, 
our art is so based in the land. I talk about how I have really land-based art, not just because I use porcupine quills and um, <laughs> and caribou and moose hair and and smoke tides and um, and birch bark, but because I have to have a really good relationship with the land in order to create what I create, and in order to even have even gather my materials. Kind of looking to maybe not as we have always done, but at times as they have always done, as the people who are hosting you, as communities who are hosting you in a place, how they have taken care of themselves in their community. And so I know that's not simple, like that requires a lot of work um, and a lot of listening and a lot of care and probably a good amount of research, but really looking at how our communities have done things and not trying to, you know, like I'm not saying put on their regalia, that's, that's not good, that's <laughs> not helpful, but really kind of taking on that mindset, that's the connection and care and compassion that is so important. Honestly, like I'm, I'm happy to share my culture and community, really looking at, you know, am I living a good life? Am I looking towards the seven generations in the past, seven generations in the future when I'm making a decision? Am I looking towards what my community members need? Am I looking towards what, what host nations would be doing in this situation. And I think that's how we can really look at care and compassion in a broad sense. And personally, I mean, just, just live a good life. Like, <laughs> you know, take care of one another. I think sometimes um, people are always shocked at how often Native people give things away. And I know that the term Indian giver exists and that's like for someone who takes something back, which is rude, don't use it. Um, <laughs> but, we give things away so often and people always are like, well, why are you doing that? Like that was worth how much money, you know, and sometimes people get upset about that. And I try to explain to people that it always comes back some way, you know, maybe it doesn't come back and you receive that exact item again, but it comes back in that when you're caring for your community, your community cares for you. And it's, this really gentle way of going about things. And it probably means that you won't be a rich person in like the colonial sense, but you'll be incredibly rich and incredibly wealthy in how you interact and live with your community and are a part of it. And I think that's really special. And I think it's a lot more people <laughs> were moving in that direction of community care tactics, we would have a really, really different world. The values that have always been here are really good values. <laughs> like there's a reason that they've made it this long. <laughs> there's a reason we've had them for time immemorial is because they're good. Um, I also appreciate that you um, you brought up the two spirit, uh, you know, conversation. I didn't realize that it was connected to that and that there was like, an, there's an origin story there that I didn't know about. That's really cool. The Ojibwe name for Two-Spirit came in a dream. It was in 1990, Dr. Myra Laramie, while she was involved in a Manitoba protest in support of the Mohawk people in Oka. She then shared it with others at the third annual gathering of Native American First Nations gays and lesbians in 1990. It's always just like the word queer because I felt like it just covered everything, right? And I love the word indigiqueer. Uh, Joshua had an amazing artist, or writer, poet, all these things. Um, I believe Ariel Twist also, also an amazing uh, two-spirit poet. Um, uh, Smokey Sumac has also used it as well. I'm just name dropping like crazy here. You're please. I love, I love reading. 
I really love books. I love literature. I know I do visual art, but geez, I love to read. Um, That's awesome. I, um, I mean, DigiQueer is one of those things because then it doesn't force any community recognition the way that Two-Spirit kind of needs to. And so I'll use DigiQueer a lot. Oftentimes when I'm in spaces that are, um, and I think oftentimes because Two-Spirit can be co-opted and appropriated by people who are not Indigenous, I oftentimes will use DigiQueer in queer spaces is because it's really hard for them to take it. They can't say they're DigiQueer if they're not Indigenous because it's like you lie. And indigiqueer is so nice because you can't steal it if you're not indigenous because it acknowledges that our genders or sexualities have always been a part of this land and our indigeneity is just as important as our queerness and our identity. Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions. Tell me one thing we don't talk enough about. Land acknowledgments are absolutely nothing without shared stewardship. Like these are the people who have taken care of this land and who are still taking care of it. So we're going to listen to them and work with them. When I have to put in how many hours of unpaid labor for a museum or an institution, all I'm told is, well, you know, it's the value of being able to represent your people and right historic wrongs. I was like, no, the historic wrongs are still happening. Reciprocity is something that I think about a lot. Yeah. But yeah, reciprocity in thinking of how, how ideas, how lifeways, how understandings, teachings, how resources, everything flows between, between people and, and in communities and, and what that looks like when reciprocity isn't, isn't equitable. I think that's really, um, because then it's no longer reciprocity, is it, you know, um, and so thinking about what are the effects of that, um, I think that's something I could talk about that all day, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> well, like people could understand like how things got the way they are now. If we just talked about that a little more, I think you're, <laughs> you're bang on with that. Absolutely. I mean, when, when you start to listen to people talk about the interconnectedness of all things, and then you're like, oh yeah, when we cut some people out of that equation or conversation, no wonder things are the way they are, right? It's simple. It's very like, it's less, much less complicated than trying to explain to people like what happened to indigenous people in Canada or what happened to yeah. indigenous people in the U S right. It's like you, you actually said it in a sentence, right? Thank Reciprocity. You. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I think it's kind of like when you get lost, right. And you just have to retrace your steps and that's how you get unlost. <laughs> and we have a word in Ojibwe, uh, which can mean, lost it can mean elsewhere um it can be like in a place unknown and so i guess if we're trying to retrace our steps on on where how we ended up elsewhere it helps to kind of see which turns here there because then you can undo them absolutely all right so the title of the podcast is my one question is is there anything we forgot to mention anything we didn't talk about today that you'd like to add i'm currently speaking from a place of uh, you know speaking to people and so to any elders knowledge keepers knowledge carriers those who know more than me those who have lived longer than me um i want to offer an apology if i have misspoken at all um and to know that i did my best and i guess also acknowledging how and this is not a land acknowledgement this is acknowledging people but 
all the amazing artists like Dakota. I appreciate her, her name dropping. I think of the amazing artists in Madison, who I hope you get to speak to, um, Abba Pekawakwe, um, Jenny Gao, um, I think of Anungakwe Wolf, um, and all these really amazing artists who, who've helped me so much and who I've been able to grow with. You know, I wouldn't be here without them. It's really a community effort. I'm just really grateful for this time today. Um, and I'm excited to see how you move forward with this podcast, you know, going into the future. Okay. Thank you. Sorry Thank about you so that. much for joining us. All right. Appreciate Talk to it. you later. Okay. Thanks, Jesse. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to My One Question Is. We hang out at the intersection of art, race, story, and hope. We thank you for joining us on this adventure in listening. I'm Jesse, and she's Laura. Until next time. Until next time. See you later. Thank you. Thank you.